to order. Uh, we just heard from Jason. He is running a bit late, so he'll catch up when, when he gets here. Um, good morning, and thank you all for coming. Today is the last Disaster Council meeting of the fiscal year. I think we had a very productive year, and I want to thank all of you for your commitment and your dedication over the past year and attending our, our Disaster Council. It's a, a place that we can share information and learn from each other, so thank you. As you know, um, DEM ensures that we have um, our ability to respond to and recover from emergencies. And with our 45th mayor um, coming into office, Mayor Breed, we will ensure consistency uh, as we do every day in, in uh, situations facing the city. We'll make sure in this next couple weeks that we do, we set up a training and we also do a tabletop exercise with the policymakers and ensure that her new staff is familiar with what their role is in an emergency also. Um, over the past six months, we met with the 16 largest departments in San Francisco. It was a customer check-in, basically. We wanted to make sure that the departments were getting what they needed from us. Um, I think that this is something we'd like to do every year now. We learned a lot. We put together a, a, a lessons learned, if you will, from those meetings and the top things that came out of each of the meetings. And so it was very productive um, for me and for my staff. Um, I also wanted to recognize um, Mayor Farrell. His leadership and his support since becoming 44th mayor of San Francisco has been outstanding. He really understands what Department of Emergency Management is about and what our mission is for the city. And so in, this, in our next two-year budget, which I just testified to the Board of Supervisors on the, on the budget, the first, uh, first go-around, uh, he's an included an $8 million investment to hire 90 new dispatchers. And I'm sure you saw us in the paper in the last year. Uh, we were struggling, but I'm happy to say with the help of our partners and Department of Human Resources and the mayor's office and the, the team that we put together last year, including the fire department and the police department, looking at first response, we are now meeting our response times. And so we are gonna continue to hire over the next two years. And we're very, very pleased about that. We are also um, recommended funding, or the mayor's recommending funding for a pilot watch center in our budget this coming year. This will ensure that we have situational awareness at all time of what's happening in San Francisco and throughout the region. It's something I've been advocating for for the last four years, and so I'm very excited that this year we have the pilot project in the budget. We're the only large, large urban area in the United States at this point that does not have such a center. So. I feel very excited about um, what's coming up in the next year. So again, I just want to thank you all for your participation. It's a delight to work with each and every one of you, my colleagues, my friends, and I'm going to turn this over to my deputy director now, Mike Dayton, to give an overview of what else we've been doing. All right, well, thanks, Ann, and thanks, everybody, for being here. Uh, one thing I did want to report on was uh, an issue that came up uh, during last uh, disaster council meeting, and that was when uh, Director Ed Riskin uh, 
you know, recently read an article right after the North Bay fires about the state of the mutual aid system in California. Is it robust enough to respond to a catastrophic event? You know, we were certainly monitoring that too. So Director Cronenberg and, you know, Chief Hayes White have been very active with the fire chiefs, with the emergency managers across the state. So in the state budget today, there's uh, $50 million that's gonna be included in the new state budget to make the state mutual aid system more robust. There's gonna be $25 million for Cal OES to purchase 110 new fire engines. There's also $25 million in there to actually allow for the first time in California fire resources to be pre-positioned ahead of high winds. And it will also allow us if we have you know, extreme temperatures or extreme, you know, a, you know, if we have advanced notice of a hazard, then we can actually pre-request resources to be pre-staged here in San Francisco. So it's, it's a big change to the mutual aid system. Um, then another effort that uh, Ann has been leading is earthquake early warning. So in the state budget, there's 15.75 million for, to expand the, the network of sensors to give us earthquake early warning. Um, on top of that money in the general fund budget, we've also recently resubmitted an application for $2.75 million for earthquake early warning to protect our fire stations and our schools. And I know Brian Strong has got some other projects that we'll get, that we'll touch on during his presentation under the hazard mitigation grant. Um, and then, so I'd like to just jump right into our, our planning initiatives within the agenda of the packet that you have. It really outlines, we're updating the emergency response plan, so I'm not gonna go into great detail about that. We've also been working very closely with the Mayor's Office of Disability on access and functional needs and making sure that all of our plans include those, those measures. Uh, we're updating the earthquake annex. Uh, probably the most important thing in the earthquake annex is we've really reached out to every department and ask them to focus on the mutual aid resources. And we've developed prescriptive missions for the first times for every department on what the departments would be requesting. That'll be part of our resource request drill prior to Fleet Week. Uh, we've also updated the mass care annex. Uh, we're gonna be, you know, we've recently exercised that. We're gonna be exercising that during Yellow Command. So just on that point, if I can turn to Dr. Bob to talk a little bit about meeting the medical needs of our residents in sheltering. Sure, um, so we recently, actually last Friday, did a tabletop on um, having a co-located medical shelter in a general population shelter. And one of the things that we've been very careful about is if people come in with medical needs but are able to take care of themselves in a general population shelter, we would support that. And that's part of that whole access and functional um, needs portion. But if people came in and let's say they were having tube feeds at home or on a ventilator at home and they got displaced and they didn't have any of their equipment with them, to prevent them from um, being a burden on the hospital system or the acute care system, if we could take care of them at a the shelter location, we would try to do so. So um, basically, we, we went through our plan, and um, I, it was a really good success. We had a lot of different people, a lot of different agencies. We had the American Red Cross in the room, um, HSA, um, and a lot of our close partners to discuss the plan. Came out with some good successes and some gaps that we have to work on moving forward. Um, and I think part of this will lead into Yellow Command, where we can exercise a bit more on this. All right, thanks, Doctor. And Ben, do you have anything to add on that? 
Um, no, I think the exercise last week went very well. Um, we had some really good takeaways, and we're doing a lot of planning for Yellow Command, where we're going to do, uh, we're opening up St. Mary's, and we will be um, doing a full-scale exercise in September and be able to work through a lot of the issues that uh, we've already identified. Great, thanks. So the other major plan that we're working on is the debris disaster management plan. So uh, Edie Schaefer on our team has been working very closely with the Department of Public Works. So we're, we're hoping to uh, explore that further during Fleet Week as well. Um, in terms of the emergency response activities, I think most everybody in this room had somebody or did participate in the epicenter exercise. That was our two-day earthquakes uh, preparedness summit really was focused on the partnerships that we have with the VOAD and, and, and meeting, meeting the needs of you know, the most vulnerable residents. We also touched a lot on su supply chain resilience during those conversations and critical transportation. Um, you know, coinciding with the anniversary of the great earthquake, we always do a Department of Oper or Department Operations Center communications drill. So that's where we test the capability or our capability for the Department Operations Centers to communicate with the EOC. We also tested out our satellite communication systems and our alternative communication systems during that drill. Um, upcoming, as uh, Dr. Baba and, and Ben mentioned, is Yellow Command. That exercise is September 6th. So during that exercise, we're actually gonna set up a shelter at St. Mary's. Uh, we're gonna focus on just-in-time training for shelter workers. And then prior to that, we're really gonna be asking the Department of Building Inspection and the Department of Human Resources to, to focus on how do we activate the disaster service workers and how do we activate the safety assessment program to make sure a facility would be adequate for sheltering capabilities. So, so we'll be doing that prior to Yellow Command. And then the other major exercise that we have coming up is Fleet Week, which as always, it's uh, the first week of October. And Fleet Week is really designed for us to you know, anticipate 96 hours out. What are the missions that we would request of, of FEMA or the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the Department of Defense and, and in particular the Navy? So this year we're going to focus on communications, if, what type of redundant communications capabilities they can bring into the city if those are compromised. And we're also going to be working very closely with the port on a fuel staging area at Pier 96. And then we're going to be asking the state and FEMA to set up a fuel task force that is called for in their uh, Bay Area re Regional Catastrophic Plan. But it's, it's one of those task forces that's kind of lived in a plan but has never really been tested, so we want to see what that looks like and how they allocate scarce fuel resources for a regional catastrophic event. Um, it, it, are there any any questions or comments on those two items before I turn it over to uh, Brian Strong? All right, Brian, would you like to talk about uh, resiliency and recovery? Sure. <laughs> Sorry, or you need more prep time? Uh, nope. <laughs> there was someone who's going to come and That's talk. I'd like to Brian. All right. We want to leave time for conversation. <laughs> Got it. So, uh, no, it's been it's been a really full couple of months since we've last um, spoken with you, or since we had our last meeting. Uh, a, a lot of work has been happening. So I know quickly I'll talk a little bit about the Lifelines Restoration Performance Project. You guys have heard about this before. 
So we actually have now scheduled 14 interviews with different Lifeline providers, including PG&E, AT&T, um, the PUC, various enterprises at the PUC, all the different utilities. And that is, um, those interviews have been scheduled. We actually had a meeting just the other day uh, where we had a presentation from the Sewer System Improvement Program and we're learning about their levels of service that are being presented. Um, they're talking about uh, 72 hours or so is one of the goals that they're striving for of dry weather. Correct me if I'm wrong, when it's dry, that we'll be able to get the, the sewer system, you know, fully functional again. So those are some of the, the discussions we're having. Uh, that once we have the interviews which are scheduled to take place through summer, then we will be bringing these sectors together. So then we'll be bringing, for instance, all the communication partners together or some of the various utilities, uh, for instance, water and power. So um, where, where we know there's really tight, uh, where there's sort of a symbiotic relationship between them. So that will be happening. Um, and in those discussions, we'll really be looking at, okay, what is the expected recovery timeframe now? and what should it be? And the focus, I think, in those will be a lot around what should it be and how can we work together then to get from where we are now to what it should be. Um, and so that's the goal of that project. The, the other work that we're doing is, um, and I think it's on a slide here, it's our Hazard and Climate Resilience Plan. So my lead on this, Melissa Higby may be jumping, may be coming down in a minute. Um, Brian, I apologize. I jumped right over response, so if you want us to go back to the response activities, I can do that. <laughs> uh, sure. Well, if you want to give, yeah, if, that would be great. Okay. Why don't we do that, and then we'll come back to this, and then I can okay. run through the apologize. rest. apologize. My poor eyesight. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. All right. Well, All right. So, so on response activities, so pardon <laughs> me, uh, we had... Uh, the Healthy Streets Operations Center, and I was going to ask uh, Chief Ali and Bijan Karimi uh, to report out on that. Sure. Uh, I'll start. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, as you may be aware, the Healthy Streets Operations Center became active on uh, January 16th of this year. The role of this effort is to basically bring together the various city departments that have an interest in addressing uh, the issue of resol resolving uh, homelessness and uh, street encampments and the provision of care to those individuals who need them. Um, and so what you have is, uh, for that matter, the Department of Homelessness and uh, Supportive Housing, the Department of Public Health, uh, the Department of Public Works, uh, the Department of Emergency Management, which uh, houses this effort, uh, and the Controller's Office, who are working uh, in collaboration and providing uh, resolution and care to those in need. Uh, the operation is Monday through Friday, uh, 7 a.m. to 3. Uh, the police department's role in this is that we provide uh, commander of police. This uh, effort is being uh, led by Commander David Lazar, uh, one lieutenant, one sergeant, and six officers. Uh, that's the central core group of officers who are working out of uh, HSOC, and they are further augmented by uh, three to six officers per district station who, uh, on a full-time basis, deal with uh, homeless outreach. Um, clearly, the issues we want to uh, deal with are proactive uh, encampment resolution before, you know, encampments uh, become um, uh, beyond control. We want to deal with them in their infancy. Uh, we've identified uh, 
top 20 high need clients and the hope there is that by providing those high need clients all the residual issues that surround their uh, lack of care and lack of um, of, uh, uh, of, uh, of resolution are, are, are mitigated through the identifying them. There's a high number of 311 calls um, that go into DEM uh, that, that are generating calls for service for the police department. The goal is to reduce those uh, by having them, uh, pardon me here, lost my track. The goal is to reduce those by having them go through a centralized location and the reduction of city, uh, city services as well as nonprofit resources. Uh, although we focus on five areas, that being the Castro Civic Center, Tenderloin Mission, Showplace Square, and the Embarcadero, these officers also respond to other encampments throughout the city. Uh, in addition, they provide, uh, we provide these officers with specialized training each week uh, this training is provided in part by some of our partners, uh, such topics as de-escalation, uh, contagious disease prevention, and other unique areas of concern that are, are, um, are in line with this uh, segment of our citizenry. Uh, we're working, currently working on a plan to streamline the 311 system, having all encampment complaints come to 311 as opposed to our district stations and our DEM. Uh, and dispatchers at HSOC uh, working in triage and handling these, these assignments. Uh, I think all in all, we're seeing uh, an improvement. Our hope is that we're not moving one problem, one area from one area of the city to another. Uh, however, in the event that we do see uh, those five primary areas kind of migrate to other areas of the city, uh, obviously we need to be fluid in, in how we address it. But uh, it's a work in progress and uh, Hopefully, uh, we're seeing some fruits. And with that said, I'll turn it over to Bijan. Thanks, Chief. I, I think what you said is the best way to describe what we're doing. For the Department of Emergency Management, we, we bring all the smartest people together and make sure they're working together in, in a coordinated fashion. And so having law, uh, public health, homelessness, supportive housing, and then DPW and the controller's office, making sure that everything's aligning. Uh, that's kind of the, the best thing that, that we're able to provide and make sure that we have that smooth process for the five areas we're focusing on, if there are new areas that then need to be identified, how all that happens, and then bringing in other city resources as they're, as they're needed. Thank you. Thanks, Bijan. Do you want to uh, also touch on Beta Breakers activation, Pride activation coming up, and then maybe Mark and Adrian can round out with Moccasin Dam incident? Absolutely. So. We, we had our, our annual Beta Breakers activation, 37,000 people running from one side of the city to the next, kind of splitting things in half. And, uh, and we have almost 120,000 spectators uh, lining and watching all, all the craziness happen. And it was great. And in the EOC, as we do during the HSOC, we bring together all the different city agencies that have that have a role in these activities. But the other thing that we get to do during these types of activations is do a lot of training. We bring in other partners that might not normally be involved. We ask private sector liaison. We ask some of the representatives from the surrounding jurisdictions. 
hey, come, come and see how we do it. So you might give us ideas of what we could do better. You might take something back. And so it's a great opportunity for a kind of a planned event, but there are always little things that come up for us to work through it. So with Pride coming up, we have hundreds of thousands of people celebrating over three days, our biggest one being Sunday, where we have the parade, and then we're gonna have all the celebration going on in Civic Center. The EOC will be activated uh, from, I think it's uh, nine in the morning until six or until as needed, uh, knowing when all the uh, issues are taken care of. And it's another opportunity to bring the folks in, do, some, do different types of training, uh, if there are different things pr from previous exercises, we know that we want to improve as part of our after-action process. We make sure that those are all dialed in and our uh, new plans are, are ready to go. And again, we open it up to all of our partners to say, come, look, see how we're doing it, and what new ideas do you have? All right, thanks, Bijan. Mark, do you want to lead off about Mox and Dan? Uh, sure. There, um, there was an incident in Moxon of flooding uh, from uh, March 21st to March 23rd. And the result of that uh, uh, was eventually the governor proclaimed a um, disaster on April 19th. And I'm going to let Adrian talk a little bit about the, what exactly kind of happened with the flooding, and then I'll take over with the cost recovery element that we're now a part of. Here you go. I talk with my hands. Um, thank you. So as Mark mentioned, in late March, there was a major storm that resulted in about a little over three inches of rain in four hours in our upcountry facilities of, of Moccasin, which is just outside of Yosemite. And um, it caused a lot of localized flooding. It put a ton of debris landslides into the reservoir at Moccasin, which then started putting some pressure on Moccasin Dam. We observed some seepage coming out of the face of the dam, and that was an immediate trigger to activate our emergency action plan for the dam. Um, and so that resulted in notification procedures um, and downstream immediate activate, uh, excuse me, evacuations um, from, from the dam. Um, it was small scale evacuations. The, the water that was coming over the emergency spillway functioned correctly. However, it did cause damage to the emergency spillway because of the amount of water that was coming over. Um, we did, we were able to engineer our system so that we could drain the dam um, and continue to get water downstream to San Francisco, City and County of San Francisco. So there was no interruption in our water supply at all. Um, but it was a little bit scary for us that we had a major infrastructure event. Um, so the Division of Safety of Dams, which is the jurisdiction that oversees Moccasin Dam, came out for inspections. Um, they continue to work with us to do preliminary inspections. And then um, we have a long-term plan for continuing improvements, um, stopgap measures, interim repairs um, from contracted employees as well as our PUC employees um, that have been occurring underneath the, um, the guidance of the emergency declaration. So we really appreciate the mayor's office and the board of supervisors for granting us the citywide emergency declaration. And we really hope that in the coming months that declaration continues because we are performing what's going to be estimated to be about 15 to 20 million dollars worth of work under that emergency declaration. 
Um, we will be needing to do a, a long-term capital, capital improvement project um, to fix the, um, fix the issues with the dam, the, the observed damage. Um, and we do hope to put the dam back in service at a re restricted level that's monitored by the Division of Safety of Dams um, prior to the next rainy season. And, and then the controller's office and DEM has been really active in helping us with our cost recovery process. So thank you for that. Sure, and just an update on that piece. Um, so the uh, incident um, has a list of projects of about 57 projects and totaling about $40 million. And that was the PUC's current uh, estimate of um, the projects. And so there was an effort made with working with Cal OES to, to uh, seek federal assistance, but it, it ultimately was determined by by FEMA that it didn't reach the threshold necessary to require federal assistance. So we are um, now getting state assistance through the CDAA, California Disaster Assistance Act. And uh, our kickoff meeting for that is on Monday the 25th up in Moccasin. Um, so that application has been submitted and that process is again starting on the 25th. The applicant briefing for that was, was last week. Uh, now the kickoff is, is next week. So that's kind of where things stand in terms of uh, uh, the city working with Cal OES through, uh, the, to get CDAA assistance. All right, great, thank you. Before we uh, turn it back to Brian and Melissa, uh, Mr. Elliott, thanks for joining us. Would you like to say a few yeah, words? Yeah. Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm very sorry that I was late getting here. Um, before I uh, start, I just have quick comments and then we can go with the agenda. Um, there was a really terrible accident a couple of days ago uh, that impacted a city employee and she lost her life, Liliana Preciado from uh, the PUC. So I think maybe if we can just acknowledge that we lost a member of the city family and that, um, you know, the work that many of us do, if we sit behind desks in City Hall, we're not out there working with our hands and feet, but that this union plumber, this woman, uh, young woman, um, lost her life. So just acknowledge uh, that and, our, you know, give our prayers for her family um, and for the PUC. So our, our, uh, our condolences to, that, to you as well. Um, so, uh, a little bit like what I said last time we had this meeting, you know, obviously we're, we've been in a time of transition since December 12th, right, when Mayor Lee died. Um, and, of course, we now have um, a mayor-elect, uh, Mayor Breed. Uh, she is familiar, very familiar with the work that you do here because, I, I, you know, her time as president of the Board of Supervisors, but also when she was um, our acting mayor for a month or two and we brought her to DEM, uh, and she was the full powers of the mayor. So when things went wrong in the city, as they tend to do, uh, she heard about those things. So she understands um, she understands what it means to to be responsible for emergency management and disaster uh, response. So we're at a time of transition, but it's also a time of continuity. And to the extent that um, some of you are department heads, and we've had this conversation before in this room. Uh, continuity of government is the most sacred thing that we can do and that you can do. I, I'm, I'm departing City Hall, so um, Mayor Breed will be naming her own chief of staff. <laughs> so good luck. Bye. Um, so I, my, I'll be staying. <laughs> I'll be staying through. I'll be staying through the inauguration, uh, and then Mayor Breed will name her own chief of staff, and that person uh, will be, uh, you know, will need your support 
um, and will need your guidance and your wisdom and your experience uh, to lead him or her through whatever is going to come, be it natural disasters or man-made or whatever it is. So I ask that um, if, if I can ask you for a favor, it's to be as open and communicative as you've always been with me, with the person that's going to succeed me. Um, and I know, I know that goes without saying that you'll help Mayor Breed uh, as well, and I just ask that you extend that um, partnership to the staff of the incoming mayor because uh, continuity of government on this work that is talked about here is more, I would say it's more important than anything else, right? Because as I've said before, public safety is our number one responsibility as a local government. So um, that's a favor I'd ask of you. And just to keep the work going, there, there are city employees here, so that's your job to keep the work going. There are nonprofit and private sector leaders. You know, I ask that you do what you can in your capacities to just keep things moving uh, to keep things moving smoothly, and that's the best uh, that I can ask for. Um, you know, I, there's a sort of a cliche or whatever mayors always say, there's no Republican or Democrat way to fix a pothole, right? That's like a, it's a, it's a tired cliche, but in the context of this, it's, since we don't have really Republicans, there, there's, there's, no, there's, not a, there's not a moderate or a progressive or a political way, there's not a political way to address an earthquake, right? And I think that's the point here is that earthquakes are apolitical. And so to the extent that new mayor, new crew, they have the same responsibilities that Mayor Farrell, Mayor Breed, Mayor Lee, Mayor Newsom, Mayor Brown had and will have. So, um, I, I, and it's my intention and I have already started to communicate with the new group about um, how this process works and what to expect and the questions to ask and the people to ask those questions of. I'll continue to do that. This is a solemn, this is a solemn obligation that, and this responsibility that this, this room shares. So um, I will do my best to hand that over to the next group. Uh, they will need your help. So I ask that you please offer to them all the guidance, advice, wisdom, experience, et cetera, uh, that you've accumulated over your years um, because the city needs you. So thank you very much and uh, good luck and I'll see you around. And I'll be a constituent, so now I can start complaining to Nancy Alfaro all the time. Call 311, I said call 311, I just call Nancy Alfaro and it's, excuse me, I have some illegal dumping on my street, I need some help. So I'm looking forward to being a constituent. <laughs> thank you very much. Sorry, so I'm, again, I'm sorry I'm late, so please continue with the agenda. Here is it for you. Thank you very much, Jason. We'll miss you. <laughs> yes, thank you. So, no, we will not be happy to get rid of you. Give me a break. Um, so now, Brian, I'm going to turn it over to you for your um, resilience and recovery initiatives. Thank you. Yes, thanks. Uh, yeah, we will miss you, Jason. Your work, even going back to when you were first started, your interest in this, yes, this topic. So. Uh, Melissa is here, uh, and we're just going to quickly go over, um, I talked about the Lifelines project, but this is sort of a, a first in the state effort that we're doing, and actually we're only aware of one other effort across the country, I think it's Baltimore, that has looked at taking their hazard mitigation plan and expanding it to include climate change, um, the effects of sea level rise, heat, uh, along with other, other types of um, mitigation measures. This was a requirement by the state legislature um, that we begin to incorporate these. So in addition to adding climate to our hazard mitigation plan, we're also going to be updating our public safety element. Uh, and that needs to incorporate these measures as well. So this is a sort of first in, in the state sort of effort to pull these things together. And Melissa is, is the lead on it. So 
Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll provide a little bit more background on um, this effort. Uh, my name is Melissa Higby. I'm a principal resilience analyst in the Office of Resilience and Capital Planning. Um, and the, we're calling this a hazards and climate resilience plan. Um, and every five years, San Francisco must update its hazard mitigation plan to remain eligible for key FEMA funding. And as Brian said, we're approaching this update differently due to this new state legislation. Uh, SB 379 requires that the next time the city updates its hazard mitigation plan, it must develop a climate adaptation plan and incorporate that into the safety element of the general plan. If the hazard mitigation plan includes climate adaptation, it can be used to fulfill this requirement and be referenced in the safety element. We know that hazards and climate change are closely related. We know that some hazards are already getting worse due to climate change, like the extreme heat events we experienced last fall, and others like flooding, like flooding will become more severe in the future as sea level rise and precipitation patterns change. So as Brian mentioned, for this 2019 update, we're doing combined hazard mitigation and climate adaptation plan, calling it the Hazards and Climate Resilience Plan. We're building on the great work from the 2014 hazard mitigation plan and including some important updates, including assessing how hazards are changing in frequency and severity due to climate change and developing some longer term actions to reduce their impact. By incorporating climate adaptation into this plan, we're also fulfilling an important component of San Francisco's commitment to developing a climate action strategy that's in line with the Paris Agreement in terms of not only setting a path towards carbon neutrality, but also demonstrating how we're adapting to climate-related climate hazards. So beyond meeting these requirements and these commitments, this update also provides an opportunity to assess our citywide and multi-hazard vulnerabilities and lay out strategic priorities for the next five years and beyond. Our aim is to provide uh, direction setting for future capital planning, for uh, area plans, policy and program development, as well as provide some greater alignment in the city, bringing the wide range of departmental hazard mitigation and climate adaptation efforts into a citywide umbrella or framework. This effort is being led by the Office of Resilience and Capital Planning. We're working in very close partnership with the Department of Emergency Management, Department of Public Health, Planning, and the Department of the Environment. We also consider departments from across the city as key partners in this plan update, and we've invited staff with key knowledge of hazards, climate impacts, asset management, and city services to participate in bi-monthly meetings. Uh, we're also in the process of, of developing a community engagement strategy to engage key stakeholders and the communities that are most affected by this. We are planning to submit this plan to Cal OES in July of 2019, and we're happy to provide updates at future disaster council meetings. Thank you. All right, thanks. So that's a bit of an overview of, of again, a, a very large effort that we're undertaking out of our office. We're also in this next year going to be updating the city's 10-year capital plan. And as we've talked about before, uh, over 50% of the expenditures in the capital plan tradi have, have traditionally gone toward earthquakes. Uh, so again, that's another area where we'd be happy to give you updates, and that's going to be uh, another important, uh, important function uh, that the city is going to be doing in the next year. Uh, finally, I'll just quickly go over a few of the other things that were, that were listed um, in, in the handout here. Uh, one is that the soft story program is moving forward uh, very well. Right now, tier three, which was the largest of the tiers, if you recall, the earthquake, uh, the soft story retrofit program was split into sort of four different categories. That tier has about 3,400 buildings. We are at 
we're, currently we're at 97% um, compliance. That means 90% of those buildings are in compliance with the law. They have submitted permits to do retrofits. This is, um, this is really surpasses, I think, any other program around in the country for this type of work. Yes? I heard a statistic once that after this entire soft storage program is implemented, something like 14% of San Franciscans will live in buildings that have been in positively Improved. impacted by this. Is that, is that accurate? Is that? Yeah, no, it's about 115,000 people. So 115,000 people, I mean, this is, this is estimated, but it's estimated about 115,000 people. Currently, interestingly enough, uh, of the work that's been done, uh, private folks, private sector people, property owners, individuals, have spent about $158 million doing retrofits. So it's around, averaging around 78,000 per, um, per building to do this work. So this is a big, this is a big deal. Uh, it's a big ask, and, and I have to, you know, give kudos to the Department of Building Inspections. I don't think they're here today, but uh, we recently just had an earthquake fair on Wednesday, uh, very well attended, and we, we lots of people from the community there. Um, City Administrator Kelly spoke. I mean, it, again, it was a really good event. We're moving toward Tier 4, which is the final uh, list, so there are about 5,600 or so buildings in this program. The final 900 are in this tier four, which is, a, which is the toughest buildings. These are in the marina. These are buildings with commercial uses on the ground floor. You can imagine how hard it is to relocate a, a restaurant or something for six months while you do a retrofit. Um, so those built of that tier, uh, we actually have 58% that are already in compliance. So, you know, ahead of the September deadline. So again, a very um, positive feedback on what we really consider as probably the most serious uh, risk that the city faces after um, after a large earthquake, or, or, and we saw it after Loma Prieta. Um, the the other programs that that I would mention that we're working on, you know, are some of the insuring housing for San Franciscans. I mean, I think there's the executive order that's been moving through. We actually recently, Mike mentioned, we applied for a hazard mitigation program grant in conjunction with the mayor's office of housing and community development, and partnering with ABAG and the MTC around when we are purchasing vulnerable, um, when we're purchasing affordable housing units, and now we're purchasing several of them uh, to secure long-term uh, affordable housing. So we're working with, uh, with nonprofit housing developers to make these purchases. Often seismic improvements are needed. Uh, and we're doing a pilot program here in San Francisco to see how we can tie some of those funds with hopefully some of the, the hazard mitigation program money or other money to do the soft story retrofits or do those retrofits to those buildings. So hopefully not only are they improved, but the goal would also be that they could be functional after an earthquake too, that it's not something where they get a yellow or green, you know, a yellow tag, but they get a green tag after an earthquake. So that's another exciting program um, that we're working on. Uh, finally, when we talk about the Empower Neighbors and Neighborhoods program, um, a lot of work has been going on that. Uh, there is an intention, we're, we're working on adding four different neighborhood hubs to the program, including Noe Valley, West Portal, and Western Edition. Um, we're moving forward with the Neighbor Fest program, which happened last summer, uh, and, and we expect that we're gonna be able to do just as many Neighbor Fest programs this year. And finally, there, there's been a lot of work with, um, with Department of Public Health around the heat wave impacts, especially in the Bayview District, where we know is the most vulnerable area of the city to heat impacts. Um, we had a workshop there, uh, Resilient Bayview Heat Wave Workshop on April 26th. 
uh, and that work uh, is moving forward. So we're excited about that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. Um, appreciate the update. Are there any um, comments from individuals, any questions of Brian? And if not, uh, we'll move into the Disaster Council roundtable component. If people have um, announcements to make, anything to share that hasn't come up? Yes, Michael. Uh, just wanted to thank Director Cronenberg and her staff. They hosted on Wednesday a gathering of my counterparts from the Interfaith Councils of the Bay Area, uh, as well as the VOAD, the Salvation Army, and uh, the Red Cross, and the Southern Baptist Conference to do a debrief on the faith community's response to the North Bay fires. Uh, we talked about everything from chaplaincy training and sensitivity to how food is moved around and shelters, um, and also the treatment of the undocumented uh, in the North Bay. Uh, and I just, I, this was sort of uh, unprecedented where we're all in one room and I'm, I'm hoping that those folk, we can sustain that because I realized how interdependent we are uh, regionally on our councils and I want to make that resource available to the department. Thank you very much, Michael. I thought it was a fantastic meeting. and. We all know that uh, can't rely just on government for response. We will be relying very heavily on our VOADs and our nonprofit partners and, of course, the faith-based community. So thank you. Other announcements? Yes, Elaine. Know that our seawall project was uh, given a new start from the federal government. To thank you, Jim, and the Chamber for hosting us twice for federal lobbying efforts. It really paid off. Um, there were six. Thank you. Thank you. I'll write a letter. Uh, there were six new starts granted and only two for flood protection, so it's a really important step for us to get uh, big dollars into the seawall project and move along making it more safe. So thank you all for all your support on the seawall. Very exciting. Mickey. Uh, some compensated time off in the event of a, a significant emergency. So uh, Mayor Lee supported us, and so did the ensuing mayors. <laughs> and uh, finally, the board has approved it. And so the provision is that when there's a, the mayor declares a regional disaster uh, affecting city employees, uh, we will be able to give up to, I think it's 40 or 80 hours of compensation. And it will have a retroactive application once the mayor assigns the uh, retroactive declaration of a regional emergency uh, next week. And then there will be some people that we've identified and we'll be working with your HR departments. They'll be uh, reinstating a couple of days of vacation for most of those individuals. I think there are fewer than 40. But it's a nice thing, I think, really looking forward uh, where you know we may have a situation where we don't want people to come to work, but maybe we don't want to say, and by the way, you're unpaid and you have to use your vacation. And this would be... Uh, something that I think will be valuable going forward. 
so thanks to everybody who worked on that and for the support. Excellent. Congratulations. Much needed. So it's retroactive to the people who who were impacted by the North Bay fires? Yes, it is once the mayor signs the... Great. As we expect that he will, he we can will do it on the 16th. That yes, you. thank you. <laughs> uh, and then we'll be be able to reach back to just that disaster. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Thank you. Other, um, yes, Debbie. Uh, I just wanted to uh, remind people. Many people here know, but not everybody may. That September 12th through 14th. The world will be in San Francisco uh, talking about climate change. And I, this, to me, is a great um, opportunity to, uh, for all of us in the emergency management world to think about that nexus, as Brian and Melissa just talked about, between adaptation and mitigation. And the, I, when we talk about that, uh, we're thinking about how do we reduce our emissions and at the same time prepare for impacts. And this joint planning that Brian and Melissa our leading is a worldwide example of the idea of building on each other's strengths to make a city that's ready for the future. And I just think what we do in this room in this city is so worthy of cheering on. And uh, I like to say there are three things coming out of the governor's office. This is the governor's summit. Uh, zero resources, zero direction, and lots of opportunity. So what that means for everyone is if there are people in the room who think that they would like to do something around um, emergency preparedness, around climate change and adaptation, or in, are interested in participating in events like that, uh, contact me in the Department of the Environment. I would love to connect you into what's going on. There's a lot of different stuff going on. It's a little chaotic right now and um, the mayor's office is trying to make sense of it, but we're really excited for what's to come in mid-September. Thank you very much. Um, Scarlett? Yes, the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency is working actively with the Department of Emergency Management, excellent leadership in terms of updating the emergency transportation plan. And in addition, we are working with uh, San Francisco Police Department. They provide excellent resources uh, in conducting 18 sections of active shooter response training. Uh, we'll be going through the training for 18 sections through July. So far, there are over 1,000 city employees as well as city partners in transportation agencies who register for the training. So if your agency is interested in it, please contact me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Scarlett. Any other comments? Well, then, in closing, I want to thank everyone again for coming. Uh, Disaster Council is a very important group to share information, and I appreciate all of you. Um, as we are looking forward to Mayor Breed coming into office, just to reiterate what Jason said, I know we'll all be there to be very helpful to both her and her staff. Um, we are a huge resource of information in this room, but I also wanted to acknowledge Jason and the great work that he has done in the mayor's office and, and the whole mayor's office from Mayor Lee to Breed to Farrell. Um, but, you know, all of you have been so wonderful to work with. So I know a lot of people are leaving and just thank you again for your leadership, Jason. Yes, yes. Um, and now I'll open it up to public comment.
know, be my guest. Yes, we have if you could please identify yourself as well. Good morning, um, I'm Nancy Werfel. Today I'm bringing to your attention a serious deficiency in the city's planning for earthquake preparedness. For the record, I want the Disaster Council to know that there is no comprehensive plan and no timeline for extending the original auxiliary water supply system to all of the existing residential neighborhoods that are currently underserved. You must commit to prioritizing this vital infrastructure work for completion now. The western and southern parts of the city do not have the seismically resistant high-pressure, high-volume hydrants and pipes necessary to fight post-quake conflagrations, and there are no plans for providing additional non-potable sources of water dedicated exclusively to firefighting. Fifteen neighborhoods are at high risk of devastating loss of lives and property because they do not have this backbone in place today. The city is wasting valuable time and resources by approving piecemeal projects with no citywide strategy. Rather than building out the original AWSS design to maximize fire suppression in the Richmond and Sunset districts, a decision has been made to experiment with an untried proposal for post-quake firefighting to use only the potable water stored in the north basin of the Sunset Reservoir. The hope is that the number of fires will not be greater than the ability of the reservoir's 90 million gallons of water to extinguish. The hope is that the basin can be refilled in 24 hours from Hetch Hetchy. The hope is that the unreinforced South Basin storing our drinking water will not fail. The hope is that the earthquake won't happen now. The Disaster Council is empowered to develop a plan for meeting any emergency. Therefore, you must ensure that there is access to unlimited supply of non-potable water from the ocean to fight fires and that there is enough potable water stored locally for human needs. The Council cannot fulfill its charge of managing the emergency plan if the Sunset Reservoir is to be used for both firefighting in catastrophic conditions while being responsible for ensuring water for drinking and sanitation needs. You must require that the city has redundant local sources in place for both purposes. The same intensity earthquake that endangers the seawall also endangers every single neighborhood, especially those areas who have waited 107 years for the auxiliary system to finally come to their aid. Today, I am asking that Mr. Strong to convene an auxiliary water supply system finance working group, similar to the one for the seawall, to identify funding to complete the extension of the AWSS to all underserved neighborhoods as soon as possible so that this work can be prioritized as equally important to the welfare of the city as is the seawall. It is unconscionable not to have this critical infrastructure with unlimited water in every part of San Francisco so the city is fully prepared to fight the post-earthquake fires. Thank you for considering my comments. Thank you very much for your comment. I trust with him, but I need your advice. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any other public comment? Seeing none, uh, Disaster Council is adjourned. See you again in three months, and thank you all for participating. Sorry.